Hey, good morning, good morning, everyone. Glad you're all here. It's not that cold today, so. If you want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship. Uh, this week taken from Isaiah 44, where God is promising this outpouring of the Spirit. And even now in the New Covenant, we're reminded that God has poured out His Spirit on us. So if you'll read along with me, I will read the bold section if you'll read after me. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 31, we'll sing All Creatures. Oh, sing me, 
to the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? <laughs> but in reality, there's like seven different verbs used in the Hebrew that speak to killing. And uh, King James, as well as other versions, will actually have kill. The ESV, as well as others, use the I think the more accurate uh, rendition of this verb as murder. Um, this verb is the only one that has the, the connotation of intentionality and premeditation. There's a premeditation to this kind of murder. Um, so it does, it signifies an intentionality, it signifies a uh, premeditation and just as an example it's a distinction between like in Genesis 9 3 where it says every moving thing that lives shall be for you shall be food for you so obviously this kill is not towards the beasts or the animals uh, in Exodus 22 2 if there is a thief that's found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So in the essence of self-defense, it's not the same thing as this, this commandment in the, the Ten Commandments. And then in Genesis, again in Genesis uh, 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So for... Capital punishment, uh, which is a controversial subject, but that that lends itself to the fact that there is a there's a a, a lawful killing where the law is is used in there, and so for like the um, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Um, if you happen to be vegan, and I don't want to step on any toes, but if you're vegan and you, you've accepted that premise, uh, which is fine, you can do that. Just, just don't call it biblical. Uh, you can call it ethical if you want, but it's not a biblical eth 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 ethical type thing. It's, it's, it's a man-made, a folly of ethics, not, not a biblical. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes a step further and he says, um, I tell you that if you even have hate in your heart, you've committed murder. So Jesus had a way of doing that, that he brings it to a whole nother level, that this was the law, but he goes on and says that out of your very heart, if you have hatred toward your brother, that is considered murder. So there's a lot of distinctions, a lot of nuances in, in these words. 
which I'm a word nerd, so that's, that's what I do. If you would all join me in this prayer of confession. Almighty God, creator of everyone and everything, you have made us in your image. You have called us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Yet we have not done that, whether in our thoughts or words, in our gestures or deeds, we have hated our neighbor. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to walk in love, meekness, patience, and peace toward one another. Amen. send it to you beforehand. I should have. If you want to turn to um, hymn number 17, we'll be singing a new song today, Psalm 100. So, you know, you hear us sometimes talk about how we come and every week we read the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, and we sing the word. And typically that's through songs that are based on the word, but this week And a couple different times we get to actually sing the words of Scripture. And so this is Psalm 100. This is a psalm calling all people to worship the Lord, to sing to Him, to know that He is God. And it's to the tune of the doxology, which we'll actually sing at the final verse, which is praise God from whom all blessings flow. So same tune, um, just follow along as you can.
of my favorite sections in Ezekiel. So explicitly details the shadow of what is to come. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord that out of our wickedness and our reviledness, with no help from us at all, you've taken a heart of stone and you've replaced it with a heart of flesh, that you've breathed new life into us, that you enable us to follow your statutes, that you enable us and you give us a desire for your statutes, your law, those things that please you. Father, continue to pour out your grace on us as we learn day by day, Sunday by Sunday, how to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So going to school here at uh, the Orthodox Catechism, the question is asked, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is first, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son, He's eternal God. So we have right from the very beginning, the Trinity, right? That's important. Second, that the Spirit is given also to me so that through true faith, He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Amen. 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 You all can be seated. If you want to open up your Bibles with me, we'll turn to Romans chapter 7, or not 7, 8 rather. Um, we've been going through the book of Romans the last couple weeks. We'll be doing eight, um, eight messages on Romans 8, and hopefully it's been fruitful so far. Um, last week we looked at well, first, we looked at Romans 1, 8, 1, that talks about that great Protestant absolution, we could call it, which is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. This great gospel hope, this great promise that God has given his people, that for those that are in Christ, there's no condemnation. And then last week, we talked about this contrast between, that Paul sets up between those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. Those that are unbelievers, that are separated from God, and those that have been united to Christ by faith, that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we focused mainly on those that are in the flesh. What does that mean? What does that look like? And it was a pretty dark picture, right? We, we saw that those that are in the flesh do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. So we looked at the very grim picture of man in his fallen state, that before a holy God, 
he is with no hope for salvation. And so we looked at those that are in the flesh. And so we sort of turn the page this week. We're going to be talking about those that are in the spirit. So if last week we talked about those that are in the flesh, we saw the darkness and the depths of human depravity. This week we will see God's work of the spirit. And so while last week might have been hard, maybe it's hard sometimes to look at our own sin and sinfulness. Hopefully that will make this week all that more glorious (laughs) where we see God's great work of redemption and how far he has brought us by his spirit. So we'll look at that today and we'll see not only this idea of being indwelt by the spirit. What does that mean? Who is that for? And we'll also see the implications of this indwelling of the spirit, how it promises hope for the Christian, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. I'll read those and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for these great and precious promises that you've given us through your inspired word that is our final and sufficient authority. And as we see that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, may we look this morning to your spirit Would you empower the proclamation of your word? Would you illumine the hearts of your people that they might see the great truths, the great depths of their need, and the great hope that the Christian has, not only in this life, but in the life to come. We pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. So many of us might be familiar with these passages. Some of these are quoted quite frequently and... Um, Again, it's just a continuation of last week. If last week was setting up those that are in the flesh, right? We talked about those that live according to the flesh, that set their minds on the things of the flesh. We see the great contrast to those that have been indwelt by the Spirit. And so Paul begins with this word. He says, you. So everything up to this point was sort of almost third person, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Right? For God has done. It's almost talking in this third person. But now at verse 9, he makes it more pointed. Right? He says, you. So in Paul's context, this was spoken to the church in Rome. Right? We're, beating, we're reading the book of Romans. <laughs> this was an epistle. We talked about this. This was a letter that was to be read to the churches and to be passed around, circulated. And so this was written to the church in Rome. And he speaks to the church in Rome, and he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And so he's speaking to this church in Rome, and he's saying, You Christians are not in the flesh. 
So he's speaking directly to them. He's telling them that I've just spoken about those that are in the flesh, but now I'm going to turn to you and say, you are not in the flesh. That the believer, that the Christian is not in the flesh, but in the spirit, right? We talked about this a little bit last week, that those that are in the spirit have life, peace with God, all these great things that we saw. And so that for the believer, that there's many great truths. And if you just walk through Romans 8, you can see many of these. What's some of them? That there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That they've been set free from the law of sin and death. That they have peace with God. That they have life. That those that are indwelt by the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Paul's just going on and on about all these things. And so when he gets to these verses that we're looking at today, he uses this language of dwell, right? He says the Spirit of God dwells in you there in verse 9. He says it two more times in verse 11. So three times in this passage, there's this idea of the Spirit indwelling. This, this idea of the Spirit indwelling. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? <laughs> there's a lot of thoughts out there today about what does it mean to be indwelt by the Spirit. And if you've never been around church or the things of God, it's kind of a weird phrase. The Spirit dwelling in you, is this some sort of possession or what's going on here? And so we can say with confidence that when Paul says he addresses these Christians as you, and he says you are in the Spirit, that the indwelling of the Spirit is true of all believers. That there's not special groups of Christians, some are which indwell, are indwelt by the Spirit, and some that are not. That Paul is addressing all Christians, and he's saying, you are indwelt by the Spirit. That all believers have been indwelt by the Spirit. But this doesn't really answer the question of, what does this mean? And so we have to be careful. I was looking at some things this week, just other ideas of what people thought this meant. What does it mean to be indwelt if you get into some weird circles this can mean things like to be indwelt by the Spirit means to think God's thoughts after him, right? Or I even heard one person say, if the Spirit indwells you, that means you're actually omnipresent, like God is omnipresent, which is an, a ridiculous thing to think, honestly. But it's out there, and so people think this way. And so this is, in a way, if, if that's what in, being indwelt by the Spirit means, is to be omnipresent as God is, that is in some way to turn us into little gods, right? If being indwelt by the Spirit means to be a little god, that's not what the Scripture is talking about here. And so that's not what Paul means. So what does he mean? Well, some of us might, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, know that this idea of God dwelling amongst his people is not a new concept, right? It's not new to the New Testament. It's actually in the Old Testament. God dwelling with his people. And how does God dwell with his people in the Old Testament? It's usually through a temple, right? A temple. God calls his people to either build a tabernacle or a temple. A tabernacle is just a portable temple, really. What is a temple? A temple is a special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. So God would call his people, his redeemed people, to build something, whether it was a tabernacle or a temple, and then he would dwell among them. His presence would enter the temple and God would dwell there. So we see this language of dwell, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old. And so if we think about it for a second, God dwelt in the temple, okay? That didn't turn the temple into a little God, right? It just made the temple holy, sanctified, set apart. 
And so we see this in the book of Exodus. If you wanted to turn there, you could. In Exodus 40, God has just called the people to build the tabernacle. They've had many offerings. Blood has been spilt. They've washed all the things. They've done all the things that God said, all these very specific things. And then it says this in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is talking about the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we have this similar language of God filling the temple, of God dwelling amongst his people. And so we can say that this is really a picture of this is how a holy God dwells amongst a sinful people is through this idea of a temple in the Old Testament. And so we see this sort of pattern of God delivering his people Right? We talked about that last week, this idea of the exodus. God delivers his people from slavery, and then he dwells amongst them. He delivers them, and then he dwells amongst them. So remember that. We'll come back to that. So this idea of being indwelt, it's not some weird little God um, thing. It is God's presence among his people. It is God saying these people are holy, set apart, sanctified, And as we read in our assurance of pardon this morning and even our confession of faith, what's it say? That I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes. And we can see from the rest of Scripture that the spirit is not just some sort of two-way radio with God. It is God sealing us for the day of redemption. The spirit is the means by which we're sanctified, set apart. We're convicted of our sins. All these great truths, this is the work of the Spirit. So this is what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So then Paul moves on in verse, at the second half of verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Does not belong to him. This is just kind of further emphasizing what we talked about last week. That there's no third group of Christian or not Christian. There's not, no such thing as a carnal Christian or someone who can, you know, say they're a believer but live a life totally contrary to God. There are either those that have the Spirit, that are in the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, or those that are in the flesh, that are living contrary to God and His Word. And then he moves on in verse 10. He says this, But if Christ is in you, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul here in verses 10 and 11 is going to talk about the great hope that the Christian has. He says that those that don't have the spirit, they do not belong to Christ. They are in the flesh and they are without hope in the world. But the Christian is different. The Christian has a great hope. And so we'll see that in verses 10. And 11, Paul will talk about the Christian's great hope in this life now in verse 10. And then he'll he'll move forward. He'll look forward with his eyes to the Christian's great hope in the future or in the life to come. And so we'll talk about those two things. So first, the Christian's hope now. The Christian's hope now in this life. That's a good question to ask, right? What is the Christian's hope right now? I think if you went around on the street and asked people, maybe downtown Decatur or something like that, what, and asked them, hey, are you a Christian? And they said, yes. You asked them, what's your hope right now? I think you'd get a big array of different answers. 
Maybe you get someone to say, maybe it's political change. The Christian's great hope is that, you know, this world will be made better politically. Or maybe it's social change. Or maybe it's even moral change. And so Paul is asking this question, or sort of answering it rather, what is the Christian's great hope? And he starts off with what the Christian's great hope is not, actually. He says that the body is dead because of sin. That because of the fall, both body and soul are corrupt. Both body and soul are corrupt. That the Christian's great hope is not in this mortal body. And so when he says body there, he's talking about our mortal body, um, our fleshly body, if you want to think about it like that. So not only physically is there death, but spiritually also. We talked about that a little bit last week. And so Paul is trying to bring out this idea of what is the Christian's hope now? Is it in politics? Is it in social reform? Is it in moral reform? But Paul instead looks to the Spirit and life in the Spirit. And he looks at this idea of a spiritual resurrection. That if the body is dead because of sin, that there needs to be a resurrection that happens. And he's first going to look at this spiritual resurrection. That because of the Spirit's work of applying the righteousness of Christ to believers, that we've been resurrected, as Daryl read in the assurance of pardon that. God has given us a new heart, a new spirit that can walk in his ways. And so we've been given a righteousness. We've been given a spiritual resurrection that the spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. And that this is the Christian's hope in this life that many of you know our bodies waste away. Whether it's cancer or disease or plague or whatever it is. The Christian's hope is not in this body that we see. Some of us experience that more than others, whether it's, um, like I said, cancer or whatever it is. We all experience decay in this body. And so our hope for the Christian in this life is ultimately not in this body that we possess. It's in the spiritual resurrection that God has brought, this eternal life that he's given us. Many of us are familiar with John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is life with God, communion with him forever. So this is the Christian's great hope now in this life. And that's what Paul's talking about there in verse 10, that the spirit is life, that we've been given the spirit and this spirit is life to us. And for the Christian, that's our hope. But Paul doesn't stay there. He looks forward. He looks beyond this life. And as maybe Paul Bunyan would say, the life to come right? The life to come, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Hope now and in the life to come. And if you look at verse 11, what's he say? He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So he's saying, Christian, you not only have hope now, Not only is your spirit alive, resurrected because of Christ's righteousness, but you have hope for the future. And he uses this example of Christ's resurrection to give the believer hope. He says, if the spirit gave life to Christ's body, how much more so will he give life to your mortal bodies? What is he saying there? 
And, we, and the question we need to ask is, what does this phrase in verse 11, give life, mean? Verse 11 is often quoted by many faith healers. They'll say, if you have the Spirit, there's a promise that God will give you life, that you'll have healing and wholeness no matter what. And is that what Paul is talking about here? Is he saying, because you're a believer and because you have the Spirit, you're promised perfect healing no matter what? The answer is no. Because this would make no sense in the context. What's the context? Paul is saying that the Spirit gave life to Christ's mortal body. His dead body. He resurrected him on the third day. And so... This is not looking to give life in terms of healing or health or prosperity or anything like that. This is Paul saying that the believer has hope, not in this mortal body, but in immortality. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, that the perishable body must put on the imperishable. That we look forward to the resurrection. That this life is not all that there is. That Paul is looking at Christ's resurrection and is seeing the first fruits of the believer's resurrection. So even though as believers our bodies waste away, we struggle with sin internally, we struggle with disease and sickness, that our great hope is not this mortal body, but is the great resurrection. And the first fruits of that is in Christ's great resurrection. That's what Paul is looking to here to give the believer hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. And so, this is the great work of God, as we've talked about last week. And that's why Romans 8 is such good news. Because this is why we can say with confidence that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Christ has come, purchased redemption, lived the perfect life. And what did he do at Pentecost? He poured out his spirit. He poured out his spirit to give life to his people this seal of redemption, this great promise of God's work in the lives of his people, even though Christ had ascended to the right hand, Christ is still using his spirit to accomplish his great purposes. And so I had mentioned earlier this idea of this pattern that we see in the scriptures of God delivering his people and then God dwelling amongst his people. This pattern of God delivering and dwelling, delivering and dwelling. Where else does this come up? I mentioned the Exodus, right? The people are in slavery. God delivers them through Moses. And then he commands them to build a temple so that he can dwell amongst them. So that's sort of interesting. Another time with David and Solomon. David delivers the people from all the enemies in the land of Canaan. And then his son builds a temple and God dwells amongst them. So this pattern is in the scripture of God delivering his people and then dwelling among them. This is all a shadow or a picture of God's great work in the person of Christ. What did Christ come to do? He came to deliver his people, not from earthly slavery, not from earthly Canaanites, but from sin and death. And then what's he do after that? He dwells among them. He dwells among them. John 1 says that God in the person of Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. If you're familiar with that, John 1, 14. And then we see this picture in the great act of Pentecost of 
Christ has ascended into heaven and he pours out his spirit. And we see in Romans 8 that this involves God dwelling with his people by the spirit. So this pattern of delivering from sin and dwelling amongst them. That God has sent his son to deliver his people and by his spirit dwells in them. And Romans 8 shows us this and that this is the Christian's great hope. It's not in external things. It is in the internal work of the spirit and one day resurrecting us. So this is Romans 8. 9 through 11. And so a couple quick things this week before we close. The first thing is that all believers have the Spirit. All believers have the Spirit. There's been confusion out there. I was talking to some of you guys this week, you know, being brought up in different backgrounds. There was this teaching that only some believers have the Spirit. Only some believers have this great anointing and everybody else is left sort of chasing after this. That's not what Paul says in Romans 8. He says that all believers have the Spirit. You are either in the flesh or you are in the Spirit. And so this is a great hope. And this is a a good thing, right? Um, And this is also important that many of us have been told that you might feel less than if you, you know, have been grown up, taught, if you were taught this growing up, that If you don't have the spirit, you need to work towards that or that you need to go to this conference or experience this thing. And so Paul's Paul's words here should be a comfort to us that all believers have the spirit, that those that have had faith in Christ, that have believed in him for righteousness, that, that they have the spirit and have been indwelt by him. And this has big implications. If this is true, if all believers have the spirit of God dwelling in them, then this means something big. It means that the church of God is the temple of God. That the church of God is the temple of God. What do I mean when I say that? That if all believers have the Spirit, then the church that is made up of believers is the dwelling place of God. It is the temple of God. And we see this in a place like Ephesians 2. It might be worth turning there. If you wanted to look at this with me, this is Ephesians 2. This is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is called the letter, you know, the letter about the church. It's it's referencing many truths about the church. And he says this in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Then he says this, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. A dwelling place for God by the spirit. That the the church is not a social club. It's not a place where we come together together to just hang out or we all have common interests. Those are all good things. That's not what the church is. The church is the dwelling place of God, that he has sent out his spirit to dwell among us, that because of Christ's work, the people of God are, in a sense, the household of God, built by Christ, the cornerstone, and we've been indwelt by the spirit. And so this has implications for the mission of the church, That might seem totally disconnected, but I think there's a connection there between 
God's Spirit indwelling us and the church being the household of God. That the mission of the church is not external, social, political change. It is to proclaim the gospel. It is to worship the triune God. And that that is the means that God has set up to not only bring unbelievers into the fold of God, but mature and usher God's people of his saving grace. So this is, gives us clarity on the mission of the church. It's not all these external things. It is the ordinary means of grace by which God's people are built up. And finally, that as believers, we can have a true and lasting hope. That we can have a true and lasting hope. That because of Romans 8, 9 through 11, we see not only our hope now in this life, the spiritual resurrection that Christ has brought by the Spirit, but we also look forward to our great and eternal hope. That sadly, so many of us, you know, we put our hope into wrong things. And I'm guilty of this, right? Whether it's comfort at home, whether it's those things that I've talked about, political change, social reform, maybe it's moral change in the world, maybe it's physical healing, maybe it's hope in our bodies, but ultimately, these things let us down, right? The world does not go the way that we want it to go. But Christ has promised that we have hope, not only in this life, but in the life to come. That while all these things, it's good. It's good to you know, work for social change, work for political reform, work for all these moral things. But it's not at the end of the day where our hope rests. Because like Paul said, the body is Dead, that these things are not our ultimate hope. But for the Christian, we have hope outside of this world that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal. And so we experience that in a part now, right? We have peace with God. We have new hearts that want to do God's will. But it's not fully realized, if I can use that language. Christians ultimately look forward to the resurrection, to the new heavens and the new earth. And we read about that in Revelation 21. And so I'll, I'll close with this, this great hope that the Christian has in the coming resurrection. The Apostle John says this, And then I looked, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Yeah. This is the Christian's great hope. <laughs> you know, we look not only to the hope we have now, this work of the Spirit, but because of the Spirit's work, we've been sealed for the day of redemption, that we have hope for the resurrection, that this body will pass away and the perishable will put on the imperishable.
and we will dwell with God forever. So that's our great hope this morning. And so as we come to this time in our service where we take the Lord's Supper, this leads in perfectly to what we're about to do. It's a very ordinary thing, right? There's no magical transformation. There's no um, <laughs> transforming of the bread into physical body or the, the wine into blood. They're very ordinary things. We probably bought them at Aldi or something. But they represent greater realities. They represent God's work in Christ, drawing us to himself by the shedding of the son of his, by the blood of his son and the breaking of his body. And so we, as we come to this time, we're reminded that the Lord's Supper is not a meal for the strong. In a lot of backgrounds, we're tempted to think only those that have had a good week should come to the table. Only those that are, have been sinless throughout the week should come. Everybody else, if you've sinned, you need to stay back. So the meal is not a meal for the strong. It is actually for those that are weak, that see their need before God, that know their sin, that know that they've sinned against a holy God and yet have found pardon by faith in Christ. So we come to the table this morning remembering that. If you're not a believer, we ask that you stay seated and think about these things and consider the gospel of Christ. But if you are a believer, come, both confessing but also rejoicing in the work of Christ. So come, we'll form a line here. If you can sit back at your, at your seat and then we'll partake together. So come. So as we take the bread and we eat it, we remember that Christ's body was broken so that our sin might be forgiven. And we take the cup, reminded of the new covenant by which Christ's blood was spilled and this covenant ratified by which the perfect Lamb of God might be slain so that our blood might be spared. Drink.
Amen. So now if you'll stand with me, we'll respond by singing Psalm 23. And we'll be singing it to the tune of Amazing Grace. where we're reminded of God's great provision for us, for providing us with not only life and breath, but also the common grace blessings of money to provide for our families. And so the New Testament calls this an act of worship to give a part of what God has given to us um, as a response to what he's done. So let's pray and we'll receive the offerings. Lord, we thank you for your provision in our lives, that you've not only given us life and breath and everything, but you've provided for us in these common grace ways by um, whether it's a job or financial stability. Lord, we thank you for these things, and we pray that in response to how you've been gracious and generous to us, that we would 
and like worship you through giving of our, of our money, that you might be glorified and that the work of the gospel might go forth. So would you bless these offerings and would they um, be an act of worship to you? In your name we pray. Stand with me. We'll close with singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace as you go. Amen.